you're listening to I Might Be Wrong, a podcast hosted by myself, Rich Needham, and my co-host, Henry Salmon. Welcome. You're listening to I Might Be Wrong. I'm Rich. I've got Henry with me. How are you doing, sir? I'm very well, Rich. Yeah, enjoying the moment, uh, enjoying the beer. We have a log fire in the background, just in case anyone can hear this kind of big roaring flame. If not, imagine it. It's uh, the end of April. Summer's almost here. Yeah, it was very warm outside earlier and the temperature has dropped off quite quite quickly. So fire is good. Yeah. So, Fire's always good. So that's a little bit of bit of context. How are you, Rich? I'm good. I'm good. I am enjoying your hosting for the weekend, which is always delightful, particularly as my house is currently a building site. <laughs> Hopefully by the time this episode comes out, it'll be less of a building site, but we'll see. You have a choice for us. You have a choice and a band a little bit more recent than last one. Yeah, that's true. Well, the the band is The Strokes, which a band that most people know. They're about as big as a early 2000 band get, I guess. Yeah, I would say they're pretty fucking massive. Yeah, they're, they're big. <laughs> and people who may not know their stuff intimately will certainly have heard at least a handful of their tunes. Yeah, and they've got not just the music as a string to their bow, they've got a bit of style to them as well which they've kind of cultivated and they've done very, very well. Yeah, I've got in my notes, what was it about Julian Casablancas that made him so fucking cool? Well, this is it. The, the strokes are... Is this it? They were really cool. And this is part of the problem I had with them. So when this album was released, we were just going to university. Yep. And I, I couldn't really identify with them as people because they were like leather jackets, long hair. Like, you know, they were kind of sex symbols, I guess. They were... They, they were fucking cool. Yeah. And and so I, I almost shied away from their buying their albums and really getting into them because they were just too cool. Right. Okay. Interesting. Tell us about the band. So they were formed in New York in 98. And the front man and probably the the real driving force uh, is Julian Casablancas and uh, his very iconic voice. Yeah. On guitar, there's Nick Valencia and Albert Hammond Jr., bass Nicolai Frature and drummer Fabrizio Moretti. So there are five piece, which is kind of interesting because the amount of sound, <laughs> it doesn't feel like a wall of sound five piece band. It's quite lightweight. So the biggest thing about their sound at the time was the fact that a lot of stuff around them was very, very heavily produced, overproduced, pop particularly was big in the charts at the time and these guys were almost the antithesis of that and i think that's part of this yes there were a number of them in the band but they weren't this beautiful big lush sound they were garage and raw and new and different and and they they're almost providing this massive counterpoint to all the pop that was going on at the time yeah Let, let's slightly go back in and look at their backgrounds because well, it says a lot, right? So so Casablancas, <laughs> he, he's the son of John Casablancas who founded Elite Model Management. So right. Cindy Crawford, Giselle, that lot. So his dad is super famous. He's married to a model, Jeanette Christensen. So so Casablancas' mum is gone through the Danish model thing. So in terms of looks and style and that kind of lifestyle, he's grown up into that kind of space. And then you've got Albert Hammond Jr., who's the son of, Albert Hammond, who is a British songwriter, and OMG, the number of songs that Albert Hammond wrote. So, <laughs> Albert okay. Hammond, every time that you hear Creep on the radio, 
Albert Hammond gets paid some money. Really? Yes. So the reason is because Albert Hammond co-wrote The Air That I Breathe by The Hollies. Okay. Um, so Radiohead then released Creep and the record label that were associated with The Hollies sued Radiohead for similarities. Okay. Radiohead paid up straight away. They said, we're not going to fight this. You can take our money. Um, and because <laughs> he's a got, fair cop, I assume. Yeah, and because he's got a songwriting credit... Albert Hammond gets some cash. And I guess Creep gets played occasionally. Every now and then. Yeah. But he wrote things like, Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now by Starship. Don't Turn Around by Aswad. <laughs> like, and I, I don't know. I love Don't Turn Around by Aswad, but Aswad just was given it by Albert Hammond. So you've got musical royalty backing you up. And presumably connections, all sorts of connections into like you say, the modelling industry and all of that kind of stuff to build an image, but also music industry because one of their dads is really famous there. Yeah, so Albert Hammond's mother, uh, so they split and her mother uh, got a new partner, Ghanaian guy, um, Sam Adekoy, and he introduced him to all sorts of new music like Nigerian funk, Doors, Velvet Underground. Lou Reed was a massive influence and you can kind of see that style. Yeah. And he was saying the way Lou Reed wrote and sang about drugs and sex, about the people around him, it was so matter of fact. And you can see that kind of Velvet Underground influence just on the way they play. Yeah, and I guess there's an element in there of some of the minimalism in some of his songs. And that's reflected here. These these guys love their minimalism. Yeah. So yeah, they, they were writing songs. And one other thing that they get credited with a lot is their dedication. So okay. in 98-99, just before they started getting music kind of out into the mainstream, and they were gigging a lot. So they didn't do what a lot of bands do and just throw out an EP straight away. They kind of practiced and practiced and practiced. Oh, okay, um, so a bit like Guns N' Roses in terms of having a lot of live experience and also having written stuff before they actually get to the point of releasing an album. Yeah, they kind of wanted to be the finished product. And so that when they appeared, they would have that. And they they totally did, right? Right. So their first release, who do you think gave them their moment of fame with music? <laughs> Go on. It was The Enemy, who gave away last night as a free MP3 in 2001. Really? That was how they emerged onto the world scene. Oh, God. And The Enemy, of course, claim full credit. They totally do. And kind of to some justification... And the enemy were completely. They gave them a ten out of ten for the album. Of they course. basically featured them on their covers and said, "This is the best thing ever." They went nuts, and and that's how they appeared in the UK. And they they specifically targeted the UK press first. So even though they were gigging and touring in the US, mm-hmm. they wanted to kind of have this explosive impact somewhere, and they chose the UK to kind of to start the careers and i can see that i can understand why enemy loved them because rock music was in a bit of a slump this is post brit pop but pre indie landfill let's not use that term i don't like <laughs> that term but you know what i mean that sort of mid thousands indie revival the second time round and so having a band that sound like they're very diy very garage i mean they they were basically the rebirth of garage rock even with indie in the sort of Britpop era, we weren't really getting garage bands releasing stuff at that point. It was yeah. very much, maybe not fully polished, but certainly not that sound. And you talk about Casablanca's voice being 
iconic and very recognizable his voice is buried half the time in the mix yeah which is very unusual for anyone around that time yeah and i think everyone realized they were a bit of a a a special band there's a great quote from rough trade their boss of rough trade jeff travis who said the strokes his arrival was a bomb in the middle of a plastic pool (laughs) 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 which which is quite a cool way of putting it yeah i can definitely i can see that it's it's the start of something new and they they absolutely rode that wave yeah so is this it hit the airwaves hit the record shelves obviously the iconic album cover um, <laughs> we have to talk about that don't well, we well let's talk about it so I, I, I looked into it obviously and the photo was a polaroid taken by one of the photographers that was doing a lot of their shoots okay so when they were in new york the photographer colin lane was um doing all their album art and just the kind of you know band on the rooftop of wow well, i can't remember which building it was looking out across manhattan yep so he was sitting down with them, flicking through his portfolio, as you do in those days when you've got a big old book, because you don't really have the internet. And he came across that photo, which was his ex-girlfriend's. It was kind of an impromptu shoot. Yeah. So Julian Casablanca said, I want that for my album cover. And I think Colin Lane was like, what? What? Okay, <laughs> cool. Yes, you can totally have that. So they picked it, and that went to print in the US and the UK. But they then flew to Australia... And Casablanca's was doing his thing and looking through more, just getting more ideas. Yeah. And found another shot. And he found a completely different, totally different shot, which is on the cover of the American album. Okay. um, Which is just a colourful, abstract, blue and orange swirly thing. It's a photograph of subatomic particles in a bubble chamber, obviously. (laughs) I mean, that's cool. So you're kind of seeing these spirals from the electrons that are kind of getting heated up in this uh, mm-hmm. liquid hydrogen, I guess. And they've taken a photo of it. And Casablanca saw that and was like, that's even more interesting. So the American music stores all got bubble chambers and the English stores got ass. Um, although I think <laughs> I think Woolworths complained. Okay, of course. Um, Woolworths didn't like it very much, but I think for some reason they just ran with it because it became such a big album. See, I can understand them going with subatomic particles whatever for the u.s market because i can also see the u.s market saying no to ass and i think there were i I think there were some there were some question marks right and it's not just ass right this is a basically you don't know how naked she is but certainly waist level naked and it's a black leather glove that she's wearing that is placed on the top of her hip so there's a fetish suggestion in there it's definitely sexually provocative yeah and i think it's great i think it's a really awesome photo image but i can understand that causing controversy in those scenarios i think people are probably overreacting from my perspective but yeah it's it's a very it's one of those images it's another one of those album covers that you only have to glance catch it in the corner of your eye and you know exactly what it is yeah and even just the colors it's white with with a black, uh, the black hand on it and that in itself if you're looking at a scattered pile of cds on or vinyl on the floor you're going to spot it it's it stands out yep so that whole package of a really visual album cover a very tight sound which has been honed for a few years in new york some quite smart and precocious kids who've all got together they're all friends like they're all proper buddies from school mm-hmm. 
all of that wraps up into this effortlessly cool leather clad bundle mm-hmm. and hits the charts and they go stellar straight away yeah and and i think that is maybe one of the things that caused one of the more toxic elements of that mid thousands indie scene in that it almost set this precedent of if you're not immediately successful straight away with your first debut release you get thrown to the curb and that's it you're done yeah and this album is it's brilliant but the one odd thing which you kind of noticed straight away and you mentioned this just before we started recording is that it doesn't open on a stonking brilliant (laughs) song it opens with is this it which you hear some vocals and you hear a bit of guitar the bass doesn't even turn up for a minute it's not even that. The very, very start of Is This It falls apart. There's like a few notes and then it slows down and gets warped and then they start with something else. Yeah. It's it's a bizarre but very intriguing opening to an album. It Yeah, it feels like the whole band's kind of shuffling in the room to the start of a gig. It's a bit like, you know when you watch a, a support act playing for someone else and they come on stage and they shuffle onto the stage and no one cares and everyone's having a beer and chatting. It's almost like the strokes have gone, let's just kind of get the room together and just warm ourselves up first and then we'll go into this because it is a re- it's a weird way to start an album. That's a really interesting take on it as well because I know exactly what you mean when you get that support act and they save probably their three or four best songs for way later in their set because they know that most people won't arrive until halfway through because you know that's when they start turning up to make sure they're there for the main act yeah I, that's the only thing i can think of is right. they kind of want to warm people up to the sound because it is so new but i i don't know and it sort of only just hints at what's to come and again we were talking just before we started recording and i've forgotten that the whole album doesn't get going until several songs in i mean i like the start of the album now that i know the album but I'm amazed that they got away with having like three or four songs that don't really hit the stride in the way of, was it last night that you said the enemy gave away for free? Yeah. That's an immensely huge track and it's one that everyone fucking loves. Yeah. But I always think of that as the start of the album, but it's it's not. It's, it's almost two thirds of the way through. And they, all these songs, they'd been gigging these a lot. So the, the entirety of Is This Hit was in their back catalogue about a year before they started they released the album so this is a very calculated move this isn't just someone kind of last minute oh my god we've got a record label deadline they've known this for ages and they've gone let's start with is this it and you're right the the modern age and soma which come after it they're, they're they're good yeah but really it's barely legal where the album starts kicking up and it picks up a gear with barely legal and you start to hear there's more energy and just a little bit more kind of punch to them and a bit more swagger. It's the edge that comes in at that point. And I don't mean the U2 guitarist, I mean <laughs> yeah, yes. the actual yeah. slightly on edge, slightly... That's where you start to realise these guys are a bit too cool for everyone else. Yeah, sorry, the, the only thing that I now think of when you talk about the edge is him falling off stage. Uh, and I just, <laughs> I, I don't know, pull, pull the edge anyway. We digress. Let's bring it back because I'm sure you're going to want to talk about the next track after Barely Legal. Uh, which is someday, and it's it was one of the biggest songs off the first album. I I, I don't think it's one of their best songs on the album. I, I know a lot of people love it. 
I'm gonna have to argue very strongly with that. I think it's fucking brilliant. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. one of my favorite songs on the album. Yeah, it, it's it's great. I I like it, but I just for me when the Strokes are really running at kind of full gas and they're swaggering around the stage, that's when they I think they deliver the biggest punch. And I think some days are it's a very accomplished song, right? But I don't think it kind of gives you that vibe of. But I think it's for me it's. It's this three-song moment in this album of this alone together and last night that really grabs me and always grabs me at this point. This is where I start paying attention again to the album. Yeah. What do you think of Alone Together? Uh, alone Together leaves me a little bit cold. Really? It's, it's the, uh, the, the riff just kind of doesn't quite hold together in my head. I'll talk more about riffs later because some of the riffs are incredible. <laughs> but it... It feels like when you hear Casablanca singing this, it feels like he's a little bit bored. And I don't, and, it, and maybe that's just him being cool again. But why? What do you think? Is- I love it. I think it's a great tune. I think it's, for me, it's that sort of slightly off kilter moment between Someday and Last Night. Because I think if they did another track like those two in between, it would all start to sound a bit samey, but yeah. it, it breaks things up a little bit. Yeah. And I understand what you mean when you say, he sounds a bit bored, but I think that's an accusation that can be leveled at him in literally every song he's ever sung. Maybe, yeah. Um, but yeah, but I, whatever our thoughts on on that song, you go into last night, um, <laughs> and and this is one of last night from the Strokes is one of those iconic songs from the two thousands, which you'll see this played in bars and at weddings. The number of times I've been at a wedding. And a band, the, either a live band or the DJ, has put this on, and everyone has gone nuts. It's the guitar riff is just fantastic. It's it's there's actually two separate, entirely brilliant riffs in here, and both of them yeah. by themselves yeah. would hold together a song, and it would be a brilliant song. Yeah, exactly. So um, the Stone Cold Classic. That's it. That's all I had to <laughs> everyone say. Everyone knows it. <laughs> yeah, everyone knows it. And then. I'm going to call out New York City Cops because I love it. It's a great team. Um, and weirdly, it's not that listened to if you look at the Spotify listings. But, but I think it's, I think it's a quietly brilliant track. It's one of those. It's one of those ones. It, it wasn't released as a single. Yeah. I love the lyricism in here. It's very tongue in cheek, and that's what I love about it. Yeah. So I guess if people aren't listening to the lyrics or paying attention to the lyrics as much, because in most Stroke songs, they're buried under three layers of instrumentation. For me, I think that's something that this is a really strong song for that. Yeah. But, and yeah, she just can't stop saying New York City cops. They ain't too smart. And yeah. <laughs> I just kind of, I go back to like the Simpsons idea of a policeman and it's, yeah, it's very good. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and then the album kind of it, it finishes off well. I mean, it's it, it's good songs. It's not brilliant songs. Take it or leave it. Closes it out. Good song, and it's kind of pumped up, and it's all the energy that we were wondering where it was at the start of the album. It's coming out now. Yeah, it's it just is a weirdly heavily backloaded album, and I don't know that that's a bad thing. But you think about most albums from well, most most albums you would normally hit with at least a couple of big tracks what you'd consider attention-grabbing tracks up front. And this doesn't do it. It it hits its stride midway through, if you think about the high-energy songs. Yeah. It's it's a strange, strange structure, and yet it seems to work. Yeah, and well, it it got critically acclaimed 
it got so much press support and it it went mainstream like this isn't indie acclaimed this is on mainstream tv and going on all of the big shows and you know, all that stuff yeah it's, again it's you think in the u.s the big things in the u.s are playing tracks on the big late night shows letterman and all that stuff they've been on all of them yeah they've been on all of them and probably played last night on every single one of them yeah yeah so so that's the album and and it's funny because at the time yeah i I was probably a little bit daunted by it so i actually really got into them when they released room on fire okay well i i I love the previous album and some of my friends were huge fans but I kind of wanted to like Room on Fire because at that point I got them and I, I kind of maybe I'd grown up a bit. And so in 2003, that's when the album came out. We were in the middle of university. Reptilia was, I think, the first single. Massive, huge, brilliant riffs. Um, <laughs> yes. Bass line that kicks in as once the song gets going. Reptilia, for me, I always think of as being on the first album because it has that same energy and I always go oh no that was on the second album it's weird because I didn't get into the second album as much I like it I like it a lot but for some reason it it feels like they lost a little bit of the edge on the second album there's it's a bit more comfortable it's a bit more we know people like us now we're not fighting for this and we don't have to be so aloof and cool yeah yeah it it feels like they've come into the room looking as cool as fuck and then you're right now that they kind of know everyone they've yeah we've got to know them and they're actually just really nice guys or whatever it's that that kind of vibe to it but you're right i mean reptilia is just brilliant and 1251 is a great track as well 1251 was the my favorite riff at university so i would (laughs) i would love this song and i would put this on in my headphones and if i ever wanted to pick me up or i was going out on a night out 1251 play just get that riff going at full volume in your headphones or in your room absolute stone cold classic i would love to know if 1251 is a specifically significant time for him for some reason shit you know what i haven't researched that so this will, this <laughs> will be either. this will be a big old gap in our research what is it what is 1251 if anyone knows let us know yes um, but yeah the rest of the album's good uh, but it doesn't hit the heights of is this it did yeah. you listen to more stuff after that? Because First Impressions of Earth is almost like the biggest album they released in terms of just a general mainstream, everyone, everywhere vibe to it, if that makes sense. Well, You Only Live Once is absolutely brilliant. And it was it, it came out as a single and flew to the top of all of the charts. This is 2006. Uh, it's one of their best songs. I can't get past the fact that the opening guitar from that sounds like it's stolen from I Want to Break Free <laughs> by Queen. <laughs> okay. I, I think I have got past it because I love the song. <laughs> but but that's a really interesting spot. My favourite track on that album is Heart in a Cage. It's just fantastic. Yeah, so so they're, they're releasing like solid, solid stuff. But then I stopped after that. I, I kind of... I was a bit strokes out. Um, yeah, I was going to ask if you got into angles because I remember the album cover, but I don't remember the songs. I don't remember which the song- isn't well, isn't the way around you want it to be for a, for any band. Yeah, if you look at the number of listens they've had, like hundreds of millions of listens for right. these songs. So, and I guess partly that's when 
I guess some of the younger people who listen to Spotify, they've picked up on this and they're listening to it more. So yeah. maybe they know these songs better. But yeah, Angles, 2011, Come Down Machine in 2013, The New Abnormal in 2020, recent. I haven't really listened to those. I didn't even know this album existed. I had a listen earlier and I really like The Adults Are Talking, which is the first track on the album. Right. Haven't got much further than that, if I'm perfectly honest. Yeah, they, they've got this big old bag catalogue their sound doesn't really change they've got style they know it they stick with it why not and well done to them i think the problem with that is though is that it just means that i keep wanting to go back to is this it and why not it's one of the best albums of that decade it's amazing and i i found is this it through again that sort of indie scene xfm mates who like that kind of stuff yeah it was the burst onto the scene thing. I don't think if you listened to any kind of guitar music at that point in time, you could have avoided it. No. And I loved them straight away. I just, just that Im- immediate connection to the energy of the sound just grabbed me. Yeah. But I, I haven't really followed on with that. Like I say, it's those specific tracks from those other albums, but nothing much more than that. I don't think. Yeah. Have you seen them live? No. I haven't. And I don't, I, I think I would be too, like, I think back in 2001, I'd be like, whoa, they're, they're too cool for me. I don't, I'm not sure I can hang out in a Strokes crowd. Um, <laughs> I don't own a leather jacket. So, no, I haven't. Have you? I haven't. Uh, I think they, I think they're a kind of band that if I'd seen them in 2001, 2002, or maybe even a little bit before that, in that very early era, they'd be the kind of band that would be amazing to see in like a Coco's in Camden yeah. or yeah. the Fleece in Bristol or somewhere like that. Yeah. And I'm sure they've played a lot of those kind of venues pre-getting that immediate boost of fame when they were still just touring stuff. Or or somewhere like the Barry Ballroom in New York. It'd be amazing to see them somewhere like that. But no, I didn't get to see that. And I don't know that I'd want to see them on a massive stage at a festival with 70,000 other people. I don't know that they work in that atmosphere for my way of listening to their music hello folks apologies for the interruption but it turns out i'm talking absolute shit here i saw the strokes in 2002 at leeds at the festival there and the only reason i interrupt the podcast to tell you this is that it was a rather odd festival situation with julian casablanca spending the entire time rolling around on a swively office chair because he'd injured his knee a few months earlier and no one actually knew if he would quite make the festival. Fortunately he did, but sadly they didn't quite have the energy that I'd hoped for. Anyway, back to the podcast. Yeah, I would. I mean, back in Manhattan in the late 90s, that would have been cool. I, I think um, there's a story floating around that I, I didn't I didn't make notes on it, but the uh, I think they played on a bill with other bands during one night and one of, one of the strokes hooked up with this girl i think it was either supporting a band or the band was supporting them and he hooked up with a girl backstage someone took a polaroid of that picture of the two of them and then the the band for their next gig put that on their flyer to say this is the kind of stuff that goes on at our gigs it's the strokes <laughs> back backstage with it with it with a groupie and i kind of feel like that late 90s scene that would have been fucking cool just to go and see them yeah and and it feels like that's the time when they're sort of in their prime and in their like the their sound is just so garage rock small venue sweaty club type 
sound and that's where i think it's at its best yeah and now you just wouldn't get that unless you're either very lucky or you know because they'll they'll fill a stadium easily if they want oh, yeah, to absolutely um, yeah i mean you've only got to look at the amount of listens they've got on spotify yeah so influences not really um no. uh, they were kind of the the strokes sit in their own little strokes place in my music catalogue that kind of cool clean sound and and actually if you think about their influences if you think of bands like okay maybe maybe the Ramones I would listen to quite a lot but the Ramones are slightly more punk yeah but then they they are hugely influenced by the Velvet Underground who I just don't really know <laughs> um, yeah same here actually so uh, and and those two are kind of I guess in terms of style quite similar to, and i haven't really got into them so so no that the strokes are in their own little strokes shelf what about you i would say it got me into some of the garage diy rock scene that that then sort of floated up into more of the at least the edges of the mainstream yep. so i'm thinking bands like the vines bands like jet whoa yeah actually hang on a second you just <laughs> Opened the door, which had been shut for for <laughs> ages. Yes, the Vines and Jet. I mean, two classic bands. I mean, uh, no, I was going to say the Japan Droids, but they're not quite in that era. Uh, in that, uh, but I have to talk about them at some point. But yeah, Jet are clearly strokes derivatives, aren't they? Oh yeah, ab- absolutely, or at least very heavily influenced. Or maybe they've been making music that style for a while, but finally a record label went, oh shit, we need a garage rock DIY band because that's what everyone's doing. And they they got their opportunity at that point. Yeah, I saw Jet at, I think it was the Shepherd's Bush Empire and their lead singer did a stage dive from the first floor balcony onto the pit. What? Yeah, it was fucking mental. People actually catch him. There was a whole bunch of, I mean, this must've been a year or two after the album came out and they just had, I, I was stood further back, like way back towards where the soundstage was. Right. And there was a bunch of like, I mean, there must have been like 15, 16, 17 year old teenage kids in the crowd. And he just jumped off and they, they were all like crowding underneath to catch him. Wow. If uh, For those of you who are not quite sure about Jets, Are You Gonna Be My Girl is the song which yep. everyone knows. So you, if you listen to that, then you'll hear the strokes and that's Jet. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the similarities are uncanny in terms of their ability to write a jangly garage rock riff. Yeah, and that came out two years after Is This It, which is kind of coincidental. <laughs> <laughs> it's like someone's gone, I yeah. like that sound. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that, that for me is the area that they sort of led me into. But I think that was true for most people that were paying attention to all indie rock at that point in time because that's what became big when they became big yeah gotta pay attention yeah awesome. it's the strokes i mean you can't go wrong and you've picked the right album obviously uh so yes well done good pick and, I, and i've just looked into bands like the jets and the subways are on there and i can't oh, the, the subways because <laughs> didn't the subways uh and and we're rambling on and i'm sorry if you're listening to, <laughs> if you're listening and you've got a meeting to go to just hang on a second because the subways i'm pretty sure they had to stop because the lead singer had vocal like nodule oh, things and they had to kind of slow down their career i'm pretty sure they were kind of they had to stop touring and so 
Anyway. Oh, that sucks. Give, give the subways a listen if you don't know who we're talking about. Yeah, you should definitely listen to them. I'm just going to pick a selection of these bands and stick them on the end of this playlist. Yeah. Rock and Roll Queen is the song from the subways, which yeah. is... Um, and I, I'm yeah, I'm pretty sure you can hear his voice going already on that song. Just the way some of those bands sing, you wonder how they managed to get past one album and one tour without just destroying their vocal cords. Yeah. So we've digressed, but I think that's a good digression. So anyway. Um, yeah, go listen. Go you'll listen. enjoy. I mean, you'll already have heard everything from The Strokes. So go and listen to these guys if you don't know them yeah. and you like The Strokes. Yeah, yeah, good. Good work, mate. Cheers for joining us, everyone. Yeah, thank you all. Once again, we will now leave Rich to do work his magic and mix this up into an actual edit, which sounds good. Um, <laughs> and if you hear fire in the background or a snoring dog, then that's just the way it is. Yeah, it's, that's life. Thank you all. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of I Might Be Wrong.